talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. It's Mother's Day weekend. Let's get through it united and without a family food fight. Who wants that? Here's Scott Thompson. Who wants that? Although it's funny watching other people's on social media. Uh, are you, do you kids send you TikTok stuff all the time? Oh, my goodness. The Bulldogs' winning streak continued last night, uh, taking the Mississauga Steel heads 4-2 to two right here in the hammer. Let's bring in Reed Duffy, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs with us now. Reed, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, always a pleasure. Great to be back with you. So uh, we, let's, we remember what the last series was like, and it was sort of, you know, bing, bang, boom. Uh, what's the difference between this series and the other series we've just seen? Well, I, I got to say, doing the game last night, this series already uh, more fun to call because there's not a whistle and a penalty every 35 seconds or so. <laughs> uh, the Mississauga Steelheads play a really strong defensive system, and they showed it last night in the first period They came out, they kept the Bulldogs fairly quiet, a lot of chances around the outside, but the Bulldogs weren't getting to the middle of the ice. What changed was the steal by Mason McTavish, that beautiful drive to the front of the net to tuck it in. The Bulldogs started winning inside ice, and it turned the game, and the Bulldogs eventually put four on the board. But this series is going to be much more of a chess match than what we saw against the Pete's. It's chess and checkers. There was nobody saying, king me last night. It was all about... (laughs) We're going to make a move. What's your counter? And it was really fun to watch. What was it like for these two teams in the regular season? Same sort of thing. Early on in the year, Mississauga had the advantage in the season series, but that was when you you go back in time and Colton Cameron was kind of in and out of the lineup. Ryan Winterton didn't uh, arrive yet. So the Bulldogs were missing players in, in the first half of the season series and then won four in a row in the second half after the arrivals of Winterton, the health of Cammer, Jack Eyes in, Sims and Biondi come in, and they made all the moves, and you could see a big difference, and it played out again last night, where early in the season, Mississauga was able to capitalize with some younger players in the Bulldogs lineup. They were using up to seven 2005s throughout this season. This time around, it's an older, more experienced Bulldogs lineup, That made a huge difference again in game one where you can just see that depth come into play. They can roll four lines comfortably and make you chase the game over extending your top six. We remember they uh, made pretty quick work of of Peterborough and had some time off. Does that help at all or does that hurt? How did it factor in or did it at all? Well, I think it definitely helped. After that series, Scott, it was such a physical battle that I think the Bulldogs needed a few days off. Just I don't think anybody came out of the series, at least not that I know of, with any sort of serious injury, luckily, and, you know, knock on wood, but uh, definitely some bumps, some bruises. It was physically taxing. That week off really reset the team, and you saw it early on in the game. There looked like no rust, no physical wear and tear on the team. They came out, they had a strong first period, bringing the puck into the Mississauga zone, and just continued it on from there, so... I really believe that getting that first series done in four games was a big boost to this hockey club. 
So another home game uh, here for the Bulldogs on Sunday, obviously trying to get as much butts and support in the stands as we possibly can. Uh, what are you anticipating for Sunday's game? Well, I think Mississauga is going to play desperate. This is definitely a great game for fans to get down to because Mississauga is going to push their offense. We talked about it before. Bulldogs a little bit deeper on the offensive side, but Mississauga's got a strong top six. They need this game. They do not want to go back home down 0-2. We saw how that worked out for the Peterborough Peets, and the Bulldogs with momentum are a scary prospect. So you got to believe this is going to be an exciting, fun hockey game to be at. These two teams will be matching up all the way along here, matching lines, matching defense pairs. It's going to be a lot of fun. And Scott, the last time the Bulldogs played at home on Mother's Day, they won the OHL championship. So Mother's Day at the Dog Pound has been pretty darn friendly to the Hamilton Bulldogs. So I think uh, folks may want to get their tickets and get down there. So we talked about this before, Reed. What's the buzz like in the locker room? I mean, is it still all business, all business, all business? Are they enjoying this ride? Uh, how do they not get too far ahead of themselves? What's what's the what's the headspace in the room? I don't know how this team doesn't get too far ahead of themselves, but they just don't seem to. Definitely enjoying the ride, but they take every game so seriously. It is so businesslike. There's no, okay, we won game one. Hey, how's that series between North Bay and Kingston going? I haven't heard one mention of any other series so far with the, the Bulldogs playing. The only time we heard that was after game four on the ride back from Peterborough waiting to see who was in the next round. Once we found out it was Mississauga, all you hear is Mississauga, Mississauga, and what do we need to do to knock them off? They are focused. They're having fun. We saw that with Noah Van Vliet, the towering rookie, hammering the first nail in for the series last night at the end of the game. But it is absolute business for the Bulldogs. It is really fun to be around this team. And the business continues 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon in the pound. Don't forget, we've got your tickets coming up at 5 o'clock uh, in Hammerhead Trivia. And, of course, get down and support the Bulldogs on Sunday for Game 2. Reed Duffy with his play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. As always, Reed, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Back to the honey lemon tea and looking forward to talking to everybody on the broadcast <laughs> on Sunday. All right. You take care. Want to bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Lots going on south of the border, uh, whether you're talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine or Roe versus Wade. Reggie is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. So uh, with the Roe versus Wade decision, uh, or, or at least the leaked draft, sorry, uh, that has come down, can you decode what this means and where you think this will end up? Is this a done deal? Well, I mean, it's possible that it's a done deal, but at the same time, it is possible that justices um, could change their mind. I mean, this is a leaked draft that was uh, that was put together by Justice, Justice Samuel Alito in February uh, and was only recently leaked earlier uh, this week. Uh, and there is an opportunity here for potentially uh, some justices to change their mind. Uh, you know, they're they are under kind of growing pressure from uh, lawmakers, notably Democratic lawmakers, who say that they lied uh, during their uh, during their nominations uh, to Congress when they were asked about Roe v. Wade and whether or not that the law of the land should remain uh, as precedent, considering the fact that two of these justices appear to be on the record now saying that they'd be willing to overturn it. Is it going to change? It's very possible this decision is likely still not going to come out for another six uh, or seven weeks, which leaves plenty of time for both sides to dig their heels in. 
Uh, does that testimony matter? Because obviously the, a lot of people were making noise about the fact that the three of them, or at least two, as you're saying, are, are on, on record as saying they wouldn't do this. Is there recourse there? I mean, you know, there's there's political recourse um, at all possibilities uh, in Washington. Uh, and, you know, there there's an opportunity here that, you know, there could be a potential for uh, an impeachment uh, if if Congress decides that they, you know, feel that they were egregious enough uh, to to, you know, to have been lied to by a Supreme Court nominee. But it is worth pointing out here that these are, um, you know, nominees that are put forward by a political party's leader. Uh, you know, politics uh, and, and, the, and the courts are kind of intertwined down here, despite the fact that they're supposed to be kind of separate yet co-equal branches uh, of government. And at the end of the day, a Republican president puts a nominee forward that he or she believes is going to ultimately be fair to the country, but, you know, also has the backing of the Republican Party and Republican organizations. So, you know, there's opportunities here to have that dealt with. But at the end of the day, you know, they really tried to keep that separation between, you know, what the government is doing and legislators and lawyers and, and, and judges. What about the significance of the leak itself, Reggie? I mean, even Hillary Clinton spoke out that how serious this is. I mean, depending on what side of this issue you are on, uh, you're happy or not with that information. But what about the fact that this was leaked from this institution? I mean, it's 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 uh, it's unparalleled. Uh, we very rarely hear any kind of uh, information about leaks from within the courts because ultimately the decisions that come out of the Supreme Court have um, you know a resounding consequence that resonates from coast to coast. And we've heard from the Chief Justice that he intends for the Supreme Court Marshal's office to head up an investigation to find out whether or not it was a clerk, uh, whether or not it was a, it was a staffer within the courts, uh, and what the ultimate motivation here was for the leak to take place. I think what is important to look at here on the political level, at least when we're talking about this document, is that Republicans are focused on the leak itself. They're not focused on the substance of the leak. And that's because at the end of the day, abortion access in the country uh, of the United States is widely popular. More than six in 10 Americans are in favor of that. Uh, and in an election year, Republicans might find themselves on the wrong side of things if they start going against popular law. So they're focused on the uh, surroundings of the leak itself, whereas Democrats are trying to say, look, this is a big deal. Let's make it an election issue. Is it, Do you think we'll ever find out about the leak? How big is this like a Watergate thing? I mean, look, it's, it's a big deal because this is uh, this is the potential here for uh, a seismic shift in uh, in America. Mm. For 50 years, women have had uh, a, a constitutionally protected right to make decisions for their own bodies with nobody getting in the way. And despite the fact that there have been Republicans in state legislatures for years trying to overturn Roe or try to claw back and make restrictions to Roe, the fact that this is going to be the first time where the Supreme Court is now going to be in a position to retract the rights of Americans and not expand the rights or not put the rights of other people under a microscope to potentially expand them, this is a big deal. So the weight that this leak carries not only shows that there is um, you know, a, a potential problem here for other groups around the United States uh, going forward. It also shows that politics very well may have leaked into the Supreme Court.
What does this do for an already divisive country? And certainly that's not the only one. We've got one up here, too. But boy, this just throws fuel on the fire, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, Democrats, uh, you know, heading into the midterms, uh, you know, dealing with an uphill climb because of inflation, because of the economy, because of the remnants of COVID and what it has done to this country. Uh, They're facing, uh, you know, a a political challenge here. uh, And Republicans were really trying to use those three issues to hammer Democrats to say, look, this is why we need a change in power. But Democrats are going to now say, look, if the rights of women can be taken away uh, by Republican pressure, what else are they going to do? And this could become a top line issue for uh, Democrats, especially after uh, the uh, the announcement or whatever comes from this decision is made towards uh, the end of June. So the country is split right now. You know, it's a widely popular law that's in place. Uh, and, and we'll have to see how how the kind of two parties are able to, you know, either keep this at the forefront or if you're a Republican, how to put it on the back burner and try to keep the economy as the main issue. Wow. All right. So I got to get your impression. Uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we remember a, a, few, a while back, the, uh, the Ukraines were taking credit for taking out that uh, high profile Russian uh, uh, battleship and such. Now we're finding out more about that. What can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, look, th- this was a big deal. And I remember um, breaking the news with you uh, on your show yeah. that, that, yes. that ship had sunk. Uh, and, and here we are, you know, several weeks later, and the news of that sinking uh, is kind of coming back to the surface. And that is because there have been reports that intelligence that was provided to the Ukrainian military may have assisted them in going after that ship. Uh, And there has been reporting from the New York Times that came out over the course of the week that said that uh, U.S. uh, military officials provided the information and intelligence to the military to make that direct strike on that ship. That is something that has created a bit of a crisis within uh, the administration. They're pushing back vehemently on uh, the bit of information that says that they gave them precisely targeted information on what to hit. Uh, The White House simply trying to say, look, we give information and Ukraine can do with it what they want. But at the end of the day, uh, there was close coordination between these two countries to go after this Russian ship. And a big prize. How does Putin feel about that? Well, I mean, look, this was the prize ship for uh, for Russia that that held the name Moscow uh, in Russian on the side of it. And this was a big loss, uh, not only for its military, but also financially, because these are multi-billion dollar ships uh, that you can't just replace. And here is Russia, you know, several weeks out, still exhausting uh, its military strength, both in the Black Sea and on the ground uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and there are questions as to how much longer Russia is going to be able to go forward or if Russia is simply going to go all out ahead of the victory day or after the victory day celebrations uh, on monday there's still a lot up in the air when it comes to what the kremlin's thinking is i remember very vividly when you're on with this reggie and you reported that live that it's gone it's we they can't find it that was amazing all right reggie Giacchini with us washington correspondent for global news make sure you're watching global tonight for more on all of this as always reggie thanks for the time be well thank you You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, This Sunday, May 8th, uh, Ukrainian virtuoso musician uh, Vasil Papaduk will perform at the Zoetic Performing Arts Theater. And, man, that is absolutely incredible. 351, I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, On the board is Ben Strawn, Diana and Dave in the newsroom. Uh, I want to introduce you to this person who has an incredible history, uh, not only as a virtuoso, but also, uh, also with Ukraine and even 
President Zelensky. And joining us now, uh, Vasil Papaduk, classically trained musician from Ukraine, the benefit Sunday, May 8th at uh, Zoetic Performing Arts Theater. Vasil, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first of all, give us a bit of history here. How do you know President Zelensky? Oh, we, we know each other before he's become president. We, like, perform together sometimes, and, uh, you know, he's, we've been in the same agency. So it's, I know him very well before he's become president. So you emigrated to Canada back in the 90s. Uh, you now yeah. live in Ottawa. Give us a little history there, how you ended up here. Uh, you know, my first time in Canada was 1988 on Olympic Games in Calgary. In <laughs> those days, uh, I fell in love with this country because I feel here more Ukrainians than in Soviet Union, you know. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> it's huge Ukrainian uh, community and everybody patriotic. It's like uh, I like these people. So another uh, time, it's 1993, I have tour uh, here with a huge, uh, big uh, dance company, and we toured in three months. And uh, those days I come back to, to Ukraine, and in uh, 1997 they invite me by myself to, to make a show, and uh, I decide, okay, why I'm like, back and forth, I stay. Wow, that is amazing. Now, uh, fascinating. Uh, you were at the Calgary Olympics in '88. I was there for that. Uh, unfortunately, Whoa. I didn't see. I didn't see you play for this with the Soviet yeah, orchestra. We, we play in Calgary. We play in Calgary with uh, Capella Bandurisiv. Uh, my uh, father, he he passed away, but later. But with father, and uh, they took me. It was in. Uh, how I remember, it was Jubilee Hall in Calgary. Yeah, the Jubilee Center, absolutely. Uh, so you played with the Soviet Orchestra. How do you feel about Soviet what you're Orchestra. seeing happening? It was, no, it's not. It's like Soviet. Yes, we're from Soviet Union, but it's Ukrainian capella right. banduristi. It's it's like more ethnic. It's like folkloric uh, concert. So, what is your feeling of what you're seeing happen now? Now it's tragedy. Nobody expected in 21st century it be like that. It's I, I I can't believe it. It's speechless. It's I don't know. I every day with uh, with Ukraine on on phone. Uh, just uh, before you, I spoke with a couple because I have two bands. Couple my musicians from from Ukraine. They now soldiers. You know I, I know every, everything. My mom. And brothers stay in Kiev, you know, and they can't walk. And when even it's uh, for, uh, like uh, bomb alarm, they can go out. Even you know, it's it, it's it's hmm. it's, I, it's mess. It's I don't know. It's tragedy. In for sure, you know, it's like big big scratch between our you know Ukrainians and Russians. You know, big scratch. It's I I I, I think it's like hundred years. Must be. Uh, Tell us about this concert on Sunday and at the well, uh, the Zoetic Performing know, Arts Theater. Yes, we we now uh, we have like uh, now on tour. I just come back from Italy. You know, we already play. I play in Toronto in Meridian Hall. Uh, this 
Gebe Macaluso is very big friend, and you know, all Canadians, I, I'm proud to be. You know, they call me and ask how can we help, how can we help. We, we, uh, Jesse Cook play with me on on Toronto. Gebe Macaluso <laughs> make this concert uh, unbelievable. You know, we collect money actually for kids because kids it's more struggling right now you know and they need they need food they need medication they need something you know it's now terrible time uh, out there all right the show is sunday may 8th uh, ukrainian virtuoso musician vlasil papaduk is going to be performing at the zoetic performing arts theater there's two shows there's a matinee show at three o'clock in the afternoon and then a seven o'clock show uh in the evening of course with the uh, benefits to the helping ukrainian families uh what a incredible story vassal thanks so much for sharing it with us thanks for what you're doing to spread the word and good luck with the show Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. All right. That's Sunday, May 8th, Zoetic Performing Arts Theater and Vasil Papaduk, uh, Ukrainian classically trained musician from Ukraine, will uh, perform. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You might remember uh, yesterday we were talking with uh, Neil at, at uh, the Westdale and they were putting on an event last night in support of Ukraine and what was going on there. And, of course, Diana Weeks was there covering that with CHML and in attendance, and she's with us now. Diana, thanks for the time. Glad you're here. What was your impression last night? What was it like to be there? Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Um, it was it was a somber event, but I found that um, spirits were really high. There was a lot of hope and I and I, no anger. Um or anything like that. I just found that it was a really warm, welcoming uh, place to be. And, uh, you know, with just an awareness of, of what's going on, but still keeping their heads held high. And I feel like that's really a testament to um, what I've seen with the Ukrainian community and the Ukrainian people um, after everything that they've been through. So it was a great evening uh, of just discussion and, of course, uh, awareness. And we should mention right off the top here on Sunday uh, at the Zoetic Performing Arts Theater, uh, Vasil Papaduk, classically trained musician from Ukraine, is going to be playing there. So this spirit seems to be continuing. What was it like? How did this evening get started? How how did you how do you launch something like this? Yeah. So basically, what happened is that um, there is something called uh, the Holodomor Genocide Tour, which is basically. Um, a tour that shows a documentary that sheds light on the famine genocide in 1932 and 33 in Ukraine that killed millions of people, um, obviously at the time under the regime of, of Joseph Stalin. So there was a documentary showed last night, and that documentary was called uh, Hunger for Truth, the Rhea Kleiman story. And although I knew about the genocide, I, I was not aware of Rhea Kleiman. And she's actually a Toronto journalist who in 1932, I believe, went over to Moscow and then ended up seeing the facade that was, you know, being presented by, uh, you know, the Stalin camp and kind of everything mm. going on there. And and she was the one to expose what was actually happening in the fields in Holodomor uh, and expose the genocide uh, in 1932. What was the reaction from the audience viewing this? And, and what sort of questions, what, so, what did they ask? Well, there was a lot of parallels, obviously, drawn, Scott, between what yeah. happened then and what's still happening now, you know, um, and it just shows, like, 
how press freedom more than ever today is is so important and really getting the truth out there. And obviously that's not happening right now in Russia, much like this wasn't happening uh, back then uh, for many people. So um, there was a lot of discussion around that, how, you know, Putin is is very similar in that regard and and questions around whether or not what's happening now is genocide as well. Um, So there was a lot of talk about that, but obviously a a resilience among their people and um, a lot of pride for where they come from and you know, a lot of we can get through this and we'll rise again. And uh, they, they, they have that. And that's always nice to see. In situations with Ukraine and Russia over the years, and, and you know, you're, you're talking about the history right here, there's, there's a lot of relationships. There's a lot of families that have members from both here. How, how do they deal with that? How, do, how, how does this affect the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, considering there's so much, so many mixed families here? Yeah, and that was a lot that was talked about yesterday, too, is because the borders have been redrawn so many times. You know, some people mm. may have originally been from what was Ukraine, uh, you know, or what was Russia that is now Ukraine. And so, um, and obviously, there's so many people that speak Russian within Ukraine as well. And, um, you know, so there's a very, there, there's very much a, a brotherly, sisterly atmosphere where, you know, why are you doing this to us? You know, we're, we're, mm. we're with you guys. And, and I mean, th- I personally saw a lot of that yesterday, um, that there was no animosity toward the Russian yeah. people. It was more just... You know, how could this be happening again? And you have to wonder how this message does not get to Russia, especially with citizenry from both countries here. It's it's really mind boggling. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's got a real hold on the uh, the media and press freedom there for sure. So Diana Weeks with his anchor for uh, 900 CHML and was at the Westdale Theater last night for the Hamilton Helps Ukraine event and reporting on that. Diana, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Last night, the federal conservative leadership debate or one of them was held. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Ludi Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times and used to write speeches for Prime Minister Stephen harper he's with us now michael thank you for the time i hope you're well my pleasure scott i am i hope you are too uh your thoughts on uh what happened i, mu- I must admit i only saw excerpts of it last night your, your your attitude on on what we saw and but wait a sec before we even get to that are you surprised how much interest there is in this conservative leadership race and can that only bode well for the conservatives well, I'm not surprised his interest, as I think I've told you and others, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who said it. This is basically a battle for the heart and soul of the party. This is now a moment where we feel that, you know, not necessarily that it's now or never, but that the direction of the party has to be towards winning the government and winning an election. You know, we've had a couple of close calls. We've had some, you know, some drawbacks. We've had, we faced some pitfalls. We just went through an election where basically everything ended up nearly the same. And, you know, we, the Conservative Party and the other parties all spent a collective total of over $600 million of taxpayer dollars to resolve nothing. And we know that obviously the Liberal NDP agreement, you know, theoretically will run until June of 2025, although we'll see what happens as time goes along. Irrespective of that, when you're in a leadership race, it's extremely important. But right now, I think it's pretty vital that the party get the right person in charge and start moving forward, especially if we're going to be in opposition for possibly up to three years. Your thoughts on what we saw last night in the performance? You know, it's, always, it's basically part and parcel of how I answered the first question. It was a pretty, um, it was a lively affair. It was pretty brutal at times. There was some, you know, some, a lot of direct fighting, a lot of, you know, each certain candidates were pouncing on one another. 
certainly Pierre Polyabre, who I've endorsed for leader, was, you know, took on Jean Charest pretty tough. Charest took him on. You saw basically little smaller battles between Mr. Polyabre and uh, Leslin Lewis. And then basically everybody else was sort of not necessarily going after Jean Charest, but trying to isolate him as much as they possibly could. But in the end, ultimately, I think what we really saw was a very uh, a, a type of leadership, shall we say, debate that we don't normally see in this country. You occasionally see it in the United States, obviously, you see it in parts of Europe, Asia, etc. But you don't see it a lot in Canada, where the language was pretty fierce, the positions were pretty fierce, and the attacks were pretty fierce. It was an interesting debate overall, but I mean, you could see that some Canadians were not pleased with it. Others loved it, basically, for a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. But it was an interesting leaders' debate, something we've not seen in this country before. Uh, obviously, this is about winning the leadership for the party, and then after that, it's winning uh, the prime minister's uh, chair. Are you concerned how the rest of the country views this? You were talking about it being a feisty affair. Are you, are, are you concerned about the optics? No, I'm not. I know some are. And the reason I'm not concerned about the optics is because as time has gone along over the past 10 to 20 years, this is basically, at least in North America, if nothing else, this is the way a lot of inter-party battles occur. This is how a lot of inter-party affairs occur as well. And it's becoming more difficult and it's becoming more pronounced in our sort of, let's say, our very rigidly partisan environment that we have in politics. Maybe a little less so, obviously, in Canada than, say, the U.S., but it's, you know, we're always 10 to 20 years behind them, so obviously we're on the cusp of that happening. I think what we're expect seeing now is something that's actually getting to be quite common, or at least more common as time goes along. And it's not just the Conservatives who faced it. I mean, for heaven's sakes, the Liberals who obviously, you know, basically try to always stand on their own little soapbox and say that they're different, they experienced it through Paul Martin Jean Chrétien, which was about as vicious a battle, certainly privately, that ever occurred. And then when it exploded publicly, it was similar to what we're seeing here. The only difference is the language, obviously, is more pronounced. But does it matter? No. I mean, Canadians will obviously either like it or dislike it. They'll have their own opinion and differences of opinion of how things were handled. But again, as long as the Conservatives know their audience and know the audience that they're speaking before. So, for example, this conference was a conference of primarily conservatives, or basically right-leaning people. This is the old Manning Center. So, obviously, mm -hmm. the audience wants to hear certain types of language, certain types of policies, and have certain types of banter. Whereas, when we have some of the debates that the leaders will go through on CPAC, for example, you might see some of this, replicated at CPAC, but it's also going to be different because they know that the audience who is watching yeah. is different as well. So basically, sometimes you just gear your message towards your audience. Uh, Patrick Brown not there. Why? <laughs> Good question. I mean, his public reason, obviously, was that he claimed that he was. it's more important to him to sell memberships than it is to appear there. I think it was an enormous mistake on his part. I mean, he is, he is languishing very badly behind. He's sitting in single digits. Some polls show him maybe as high as close to 10, but he's really averaging about 7 or 8, maybe even a touch lower on some. He's really just not making a big showing. I mean, the difficulty for him, obviously, is he is trying to go for mostly 
red Tory or left-leaning conservative type ideas, which means that he's in constant contact and battle with Jean Charest. And irrespective of whether you think there is a side agreement that the two of them have, which they've denied that one will go forward to the September 10th vote and the other will not, right now, certainly Jean Charest is in better position to stay on the red Tory side and be the candidate for the red Tories than Patrick Brown will. But regardless, if Patrick Brown wants to be competitive, and I think he still does, he should have showed up to this, even if he was going to be booed unmercifully or treated the same way that Jean Charest was by Mr. Pierre Pauliever and some of the other candidates. You know, you have to wear your big boy pants, and if you're not going to, you can't run for party leadership or to become a party leader. So no, whenever you miss things like this or whenever you don't appear at things like this, I think it hurts you. I mean, certainly, if nothing else, not that he knows him, Patrick Brown could have easily asked Rudy Giuliani that, who tried that sort of same routine when he ran for the Republican nomination several years ago and sat out until he went into a particular state where he thought things would be more favorable. It worked against them. A lot of Republican grassroots supporters didn't like the fact that he had basically done nothing up until that point. He was clobbered very badly. And in the end, his campaign completely fizzled out and he had to drop out. Maybe Patrick Brown's going to do the same thing. But after spending a lot of money, over $300,000 to become a leadership candidate and sit on that ballot, theoretically, until September 10th, he has to show up for all these events. He has to make himself known. He has to make an appearance, no matter whether he likes the audience or he's going to get hammered by them. Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post, Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You might remember, I'm sure you do, last week, earlier on, we were talking about the passing of Naomi Judd. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, just on the eve, the, the day before she was uh, inducted into the, the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame, uh, obviously the mother and daughter team, tremendous success in the country music industry over the years, were actually planning on doing a comeback to tour uh this september and and had a full slate of of shows ready to go so we're bet we're ready to uh actually hit the road again and did perform uh for the country music association i believe it was uh as early as april uh but then of course we got the news last weekend that naomi judd had and here's how the family positioned this and i'm paraphrasing um to have lost her battle with mental illness which is an interesting way of positioning this. And and are we learning from this? Let's bring in Steve Jordans, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I hope you're well as well. Your thoughts on the way the Judd family positioned this and saying that uh, their mother had lost the battle with mental illness as opposed to coming out and saying that she had taken her life or committed suicide or whatever any of those lines are. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it does sort of reflect a, a little bit more of a normalization, the fact that a lot of us have felt, you know, certainly a lot of anxiety, and some people have probably gone through a lot of depression uh, these days. And, you know, we, we have a better understanding that it's the disease that takes the life. It's not the person. So, you know, to, to say that she took her own life, um, that's our colloquial way of saying it, but I think it reflects a deeper understanding that no, no, it was depression. Uh, I suspect depression and a deep depression 
that caused her to take her life. And it just kind of suggests that something could have been done, you know, that there was an opportunity to potentially deal with that mental health crisis that was missed. To have lost her battle with mental illness, this phrasing is like lost her battle with cancer, lost her battle to any other disease. And and talk about how important that is to to put mental illness in that category, for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is acknowledging the fact that many of these things um, are as real as, as a physical illness could be. Um, you know, in the case of anxiety, for example, and anxiety disorders, we can clearly see the the biology and the brain responding in certain ways releasing certain chemicals you know it's a it it it's a psychological we feel these things psychologically but they are having a biological effect as well and they can be just as devastating to try to deal with and to try to conquer and in fact one can lose those battles so i actually you know applaud them to some extent for doing that and and for making people kind of think about things. Sometimes the way we talk about things changes the way we think about things. And I think this is a good potential example of that. Uh, it is Mental Health Week. Uh, Post-COVID-19, we're certainly hearing now all of the, you know, the concerns of mental health, no matter what the demographic is. Do we look at it different now post-pandemic? I, I think we do. I mean, we, we used to say, okay, mental health things are, are are challenges that some people have some of the time, you know, and we've just been through a situation where all of us, like if you weren't feeling anxiety, if you weren't occasionally depressed during the last two years, you really weren't paying much attention to what was going on. It's these situations we're living under, chronic threat, chronic anxiety, um, they cause these and we've all felt them. And maybe we've all tried to understand them. I mean, I've certainly, from the outset of the, of the pandemic, been trying to pe- uh, help people understand what they're feeling, why they're feeling that way, and with that understanding in place, to try to give some tips and strategies that they can use to manage uh, their mental state. And that's what I hope is going to kind of come from this normalization of things. I hope that we um, think, okay, this can affect me just like it can affect anybody else. Um, maybe it is time to understand these things, to not to not make them, you know, dark shadow things in a closet that we hide, but rather pull them out in the light, say, what is going on here? And what can I or, for example, what could my children do about it? Is this a time when we start having children understand how their bodies react to threat mm. and stress and, and give them some strategies that maybe they can use all through their life? We remember at the beginning of this pandemic, people were out in the front porch, 7 o'clock, banging the pots and pans. There was a tremendous amount of empathy. Studies this week saying we've lost a lot of that empathy, uh, and the pots and pans have been replaced by other gestures. Your thoughts, and how do we regain that? Can we? Yeah, I I mean, I do think we can. Uh, I think what we have had is a lot of people because of anxiety that are in this sort of fight or flight mode, uh, which is, again, a very natural thing for our biology to do. But it is also um, a very self-centered, self-focused state to be in. It literally is a state our, our brains bring us into to keep us alive, keep you alive now. So it's very focused on us, it's very focused on now. And I think what we've seen through some of these um, situations that have come up in the pandemic is people have lost their civility towards others. They've lost their sort of sense of citizenship or or you know, the, the need to serve the broader community because they've become much more focused on themselves and, and how they feel at a given time. So I do believe that once we all start to feel safe, 
um, that we will, again, I've, I've talked about the great snapback before. I think we will very quickly go back to living the way we used to live. And I do certainly hope that as the anxiety fades, that we will start to regain that sense of, hey, yeah, there's a, there's me, but I want to live in a community full of friendly people that support each other. Uh, and that means I have to be that too. And so hopefully we will get that focus back. But I agree with you. Uh, over the last little while, it seems to have eroded considerably. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, always checking our mental health. Steve, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, I love having the pollsters on and getting the gauge uh, or, or, or gauging where Canadians' heads are at various uh, stages of this global pandemic. Let's bring in Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos. Reason being, one in three Canadians are willing to change jobs just to work from home. Daryl is with us now. Daryl, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, and thanks for putting on Loverboy. It's great to have there you uh, go. an intro like that. <laughs> That's it. It's an all-request Friday here at the Home of the Hits. All right, so, Daryl, uh, we've been talking about this for a long time now. How has the whole working-from-home attitude changed from, say, the early stages of this pandemic to where we are now coming out of it? I think that there's been a transformation. Well, actually, I don't think. The data shows us that there's been a transformation in the way that people think about work. And they're going to be very hard-pressed to go back to the office to do uh, their tasks as they used to do. In fact, almost a third of people, 32% that we interviewed said, you know what, I quit my job if my boss made me go back to the office full time. How is that, how is that, uh, how is that information uh, digested in the boardroom? You know, it's funny. Uh, when you uh, hear uh, this conversation take place when I'm, when I'm talking to people who are making decisions about uh, what they're going to do with their workforce, they're, they're somewhat in denial. They think because they've got real estate that, uh, and they're interested in going back, the bosses are interested in going back yeah. to the, the office and uh, th that everybody else feels the same way. But quite frankly, we've found another way to work. At least a, a third of us have found another way to work that's so compelling to us that we don't, we would change jobs if we were forced to go back. Uh, it seems that at the beginning of all of this, it was all about the flexibility, the hybrid model. There's got to be flexibility here. And it, and I've heard that it's less about flexibility now and more about show me the money. Uh, no, act. What we're what we're seeing in the um, in the uh, in the labor market right now is uh, in, uh, there was new unemployment figures out today that are you know pretty low. Is it's yeah. turned into a bit of a bit of a seller's market. So as a result of that, uh, you know, there is a money part, and that's obviously one thing that you can deal with. But there are uh, the people on this survey, uh, at, at least, uh, how many did we find it? 36% said, you know, they'd take less pay if, if, if their mm. boss let them have, uh, boss let them work at home or have more of a flexible set of work arrangements. So I think there's a lot of trade-offs here that we're not used to, that we're going to have to work through as we get back to whatever normal is going to be. And one of those things that we're going to have to work through is what going to the office means. And how do you determine that? Is that like, I mean, that's as individual as the employee itself, uh, themselves. And, and that's the thing. Uh, we're going to see that there's going to be a lot of flexibility required. One of the interesting things that we saw in the survey, Scott, was we asked, uh, you know, people, uh, are, are you missing the office? Is it something you'd like to go back to? Are you looking forward to going back to the office? 
Uh, and uh, then also this question about whether or not you change jobs if uh, if you were forced to uh, uh, go back to go back to the office. The two groups that are highest on both of those points are young people. So mm-hmm. young people are missing the office the most, but they're also the most likely to yep. say that they want to uh, uh, have flexibility in their work. They, they basically divide it almost in half. So the signals on this coming from uh, employees are going to be complicated to work through. Uh, because even, you know, if you, if, you're, if you think that, you know, all young people are going to want to do one thing, no, actually, they're the people who are the most extreme on both sides of, of this question. So it's going to be a complicated discussion. Uh, what about employees? We're hearing so much that there's a shortage of employees. I was saying to my wife the other day, I was driving around and all you can see, like for hire, we're hiring every, you know, hire here, check this career out, ba 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 ba. It seems everywhere. How does that change the discussion? Well, because obviously, can- obviously, there's there's lots of people that that need help. Yeah, there's lots of people that need help, and labor is a market, and uh, you know the market responds to uh, uh, the things that employers do to attract people to the workforce, so uh, or to to their specific employment. So it's a competition for labor, and uh, employers are going to have to be competitive, and that means. Yes, paying people, uh, you know, an appropriate uh, uh, salary or wage for the work that they want them to do, but recognizing that people just don't look at uh, at, at that as the only uh, as the only option. That there's other factors that play into this. So making uh, the workplace an appealing place to be, if you want to uh, have people return to the office, there has to be more than just you are required to be here to work. And then when it comes to offering flexibility in terms of how you're going to be utilizing human resources, uh, I think that we're going to have to open up our minds as employers, particularly as we move into more of this uh, seller's market. And that's employees being more in demand uh, than they used to be in the past. Daryl Berker with us, CEO of Ipsos Polling. One in three Canadians willing to change jobs to work from home. Daryl, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting note we got from uh, somebody when we threw out the feelers to uh, anybody who had questions out there. Uh, and this person wrote, so we're going to spend $295 million on something that technically already exists, this being grade 13, but create a whole new curricu- uh, curriculum and then scrap it after four years. Uh, can somebody explain why this is anything but a total uh, fumble and what uh, what the Liberal Party is talking about today. They've introduced their new education uh, platform, and one of the options is grade thirteen for uh, the next four years to allow kids to get caught back up, uh, to help with mental health and all of this uh, various things uh, that we've been through. Um, but again, and, and I'll ask this question to to Mr. Del Duca when he's here: Is uh, well, what about those going from grade eight to nine? What about those going from uh, grade 12 into university? You know, I mean, everybody's lost something. Everybody's lost a portion. So, um, you know, I'm not sure if uh, if this the an- is the answer moving forward, but we'll ask that question to Stephen Del Duca. He is with us now, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, and, of course, asking for your vote for Premier come the June 2nd election. Joining us now, Stephen Del Duca from the Ontario Liberal Party leader. He is here now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure. Yeah, I'm doing great. Hope you're well, too. So tell us about the your new education platform that you came out with today, and specifically grade 13. It's, it's getting some attention, especially from an old guy like me that remembers my grade 13. So what is this all about? 
Well, I remember mine too. And look, my kids are in publicly funded schools in our home community of Vaughan. My older daughter is in grade nine, younger daughter is in grade five. And I think everyone in your audience knows the past two years in particular with COVID have been really tough on our school kids and on their parents and on teachers and others who work in our schools. So today I announced that if elected June 2nd, Ontario Liberals would bring back an optional grade 13. Uh, it would be fully funded and it would be something that would be structured and help those kids who have to recover a bit, take a little bit more time in the aftermath of COVID, it would give them the time and the space and the education they need to be ready for college or university or a trade or whatever they pursue for their careers. Just a chance to catch their breath, uh, bridge any learning gaps that might exist and do their very best. We got, here's a, a letter we got. So we're going to spend $295 million on something that technically already exists, but create a whole new curriculum and then scrap it after four years. Again, I've got kids that are 14 and, and, and 19 turning 15 and 20 this summer. Right. And again, yeah. you know, uh, in, in that same sort of, uh, of cohort. And there's many of my daughter's friends who have sort of done that anyway. So what's the difference yeah. between those that decide to, you know, maybe go back for a semester or two and, uh, and upgrade their marks and see if they can get a bit better start than what you're offering yeah. here? So with the greatest respect to the person who wrote that letter, and that's not entirely true, what happens right now in the system is that there is no adequate funding in place to actually provide for the school boards and the individual schools to give students, again, fully funded access to all the credits that they get for a full fifth year. Now, I'm going to say this and put it in air quotes, and I know this is radio, so you can't see it, but the so-called victory lap, as we like to call it, or the extra year that some, some students do take, it's, it's informal. And frankly, in a lot of schools and school boards, it's in, in weird ways, it's kind of discouraged because the funding's not in place. So what we're proposing to do is to actually make it fully funded so no student anywhere in Ontario who wants to go back for the extra year will feel any pressure to not do so. The school boards won't have to scrimp and save and dip into reserves. They'll have the funding in place, and it won't be a random curriculum, and it's not a new curriculum either. Working with our education partners, specifically in areas like personal finances, mental health, uh, health and well-being, uh, Frank Civics courses to help combat all of the misinformation and disinformation we see around social media these days. These are just some examples, in addition to some of the more conventional stuff that we might want to do to give our, our kids, and in some cases grandkids, the chance to catch their breath in the aftermath of COVID. The reason that we're saying four years only is because the, this cohort right now, my daughter, for example, my older daughter there, she's in high school. She's one of the ones who's been impacted by COVID like thousands of others. It could be that at the end of the four years, we assess it and say it should stay in place as an option going forward. But I'm prepared to commit today, at least for the four years in the aftermath of COVID, uh, to deal with the learning gaps that have emerged. What about those that have already been through it? You know, I'm thinking about the kids that went from grade 8 to grade 9 without any of this, went from high school uh, to university, my daughter missing her first year in that. Yeah. And I also yeah. remember, again, going back to in my days in grade 13, one of the reasons it was eliminated was because Ontario was the only province that was doing it, and it s simply wasn't in sync with what the other universities were doing. And again, I remember having friends at UBC. My daughter's got a friend from uh, Alberta in, in she lives with. So what? Again, it was all put in, it was designed to be in sync with the rest of the provinces. What does this do for that? Well, think about it this way. Back in 2002, 2003, when grade 13 was eliminated, we hadn't had COVID. We hadn't had a world where for two solid years, our schools were open more than they were closed. And our kids, especially, well, all kids, frankly, were trying to learn through a screen most of the time without proper funding in place. 
uh, with the current provincial government, the Ford Conservatives, who've done an awful lot to undermine and destabilize public education. So two decades ago, the circumstances were different. We've now had COVID. We know a lot of kids are facing some tough times. And I don't think forcing them through the system without any real option makes a lot of sense for them. And if it's not good for them, it's not good for all of us, because we know that publicly funded education is certainly good social policy, but it's also really good economic policy. Every dollar we invest properly in public education returns a dollar thirty back to Ontario's economy. So, again, not forcing anyone to do it, but really want to create the space and the time as an option for students and their families who feel they need it in the aftermath of COVID to have that option fully funded and structured in place for them. Uh, last question, Stephen. Uh, obviously, you're the former transportation minister and economic development for the Kathleen Wynne government. What's different between what you are proposing, what you want to do moving forward, and what you were doing with Kathleen Wynne? Look, we're a new Ontario Liberal team. Uh, more than 90% of our candidates are running. They hadn't run before. Uh, new leadership within the party. And if you look at the ideas that we've been unveiling over the past few days, Buck-a-Ride uh, Transit, Buck-a-Ride Province-wide, $1 transit fares in Hamilton and everywhere else across this province, a seniors' care revolution, talking about education where we're going to cap class sizes and bring back an optional grade 13. And by the way, cap those class sizes at 20 for both elementary and secondary. Uh, these are new, compelling ideas that will really help move this province forward. And there's a clear choice in this election campaign. Four years of going backwards with the Ford Conservatives or going forward with the new Ontario Liberal team to deliver real progress. Stephen Del Duca with his leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Stephen, as always, thanks so much for the time. Please come back. My pleasure. I look forward to it. Uh, the Canadian Health Agency, and, you know, we talk about this, and nobody seems to care anymore. <laughs> they really don't. And I'm sure it's just a generational thing because uh, the older generation grew up without the technology, younger uh, generation grew up with it, and, and really don't care too much about it. Uh, remember the old days? If you put up a surveillance camera, people would get their uh, knickers in a knot, so to speak. There you go. Uh, whereas today, everyone's got a camera. Don't worry about being on every street corner. It's in everybody's pocket. And now the Canadian Health Agency has been using our phones to track movements during the pandemic, including trips to the LCBO. No wonder my phone's exploding. No wonder the thing is hot. No wonder it's smoking in my pocket. Uh, a little more complicated. And, uh, you know, you think about where this can go and what other things they can do with it. Why health has uh, been an excuse to trace us, I guess, because of the pandemic. Uh, but, of course, people are concerned about their privacy. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. And he is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Carmi, you're warning us about this all the time. Can we be surprised when we hear reports like this that Health Canada is watching us going in and out of the LCBO? No, we shouldn't be. I mean, I think that's just the way things work these days. Governments are increasingly moving in a digital direction. They're trying to do more with the resources that they've got. We expect them to use technology to help us navigate the pandemic and, you know, certainly studying smartphone trends. And of course, your smartphone loaded with sensors that you know, report on the mothership and report back to the mothership all the time um, are an ideal way of doing that. And so I think we'd be naive to think that the government wouldn't at least try something like this. I think what is somewhat uh, disturbing, upsetting, disappointing is that um, until they went to renew the contract a few months ago, 
no one really knew what they were doing. And so they mm. were collecting this data, and it was anonymized, and it wasn't identifiable, but still, uh, they weren't sharing that publicly. They weren't communicating it. And here we hear about it after the fact. And even though this time everything seems to have gone well, what happens next time? You know, who's protecting us? Who's ensuring that that data doesn't get reverse engineered so that it can be tracked back to me as an individual so that then someone can look at a data set and go, Oh yeah, I noticed that Carmi went to the LCBO a little bit too often for, you know, for, uh, for, you know, than average. Uh, so you know, who is protecting our interests? Where are those laws that would kind of keep everything within the lanes, make sure that there aren't those crazy abuses? Uh, that we all fear. That's the problem is we're moving in a direction where more and more digital tools are being used, but those protections are certainly not keeping pace. Uh, you know, you don't have to follow my phone. Just look at my recycling bin. I remember uh, Daniel Levy. I remember a great picture of Daniel Levy during the early stages of the pandemic, and he's dragging one of those massive recycling bins that you see behind stores down to the curb, and it's filled with bottles. Do we care anymore? Uh, where is the line here, Carmi? Well, we don't, and you're absolutely right. I've seen report after report, and this has been a years-long trend that showed that we are caring less and less about privacy, uh, about data integrity, data stewardship, um, and that, that that sort of caring tends to drop off the younger you get. And so that you're, you know, in your intro, I think you nailed it. It's exactly that. If you grew up with the technology and that's all you've ever known, you're understanding or definition of privacy is very different than someone who's a bit older and who grew up before all of these electronic devices were in our pockets and uh, before we lived the digital life. And so I think, you know, we, but that doesn't make it acceptable. In other words, just because the population doesn't really care about privacy doesn't mean that they, they shouldn't. In fact, they should. We need to care more about it because the consequences of being violated by the government, by a legitimate business, by a non-legitimate business, by a, uh, a state-funded malevolent actor, uh, by a criminal. The costs of those are, are significant. People's lives can be ruined if their private information falls into the wrong hands. And we keep sort of sloughing it off. We've got our heads in the sand, and we really shouldn't. It'll be interesting to see what that threshold is, where, where, what that boundary is. Because, you know, you watch the Chinese Communist Party in China and how they've navigated their way through this global pandemic. Uh, obviously, less vaccination, more just zero tolerance and lock them down. And even to the point where watching their movement on their phone and if they went outside of a certain area, uh, they were trailed. They were tagged. It, you know, obviously, those on, on this side of the world think that's going too far. But where's the, where's the middle ground? I mean, that's the thing. First, the first thing we need is, first of all, we should all learn more about what's happening in China, because that is, from where I sit, a worst case scenario. And in fact, left unchecked, that's where we could all end up. We could have uh, unmitigated, unlimited state control of our data, of our privacy. And uh, unless we have the proper legislative framework, the legal framework in place, the door is open for that kind of abuse to happen. Not saying it's going to here in Canada, but we don't want to have that door open even at all. And the second thing is, I think we really need to look at our own, you know, how we manage our own uh, data, manage our own devices and ask ourselves, are we doing enough as individuals to protect ourselves? And the short answer is no. Most of us, 
wouldn't know how to go into our settings and turn off location-based services or delete <laughs> location-aware apps that we're not using anymore to reduce our exposure, kind of get down below the radar, below the top of the forest canopy, so to speak. Uh, and so most of us aren't just doing the basics uh, of you know, privacy, data, best practice to uh, stay safe regardless of what happens externally. And so I think it starts at home. It starts with a little bit more awareness, and it starts with us simply taking the time to maintain our devices a little bit more than we have. And, you know, Carmi, we're still telling people to change their passwords uh, on a regular basis. So, you know, you bring up a very valid point. No one knows how to do this. I mean, should there be some sort of guidance? Should there be a Carmi standing up there and going, one, two, three, four, five, six, these are things you should check? I mean, is it... I wish it were that simple, but it's it's the same thing with don't drink and drive. It's the same thing yeah. with wear your seatbelt. It's the same thing with uh, you know safe sex. Like we, we there are all these you know what should be common sense, and this should be technological, the tech equivalent of common sense. And yet, for whatever reason, for human nature, we just don't care. And the reason being, we haven't paid the price yet. You know, you yeah. you'll stop drinking and driving when you kill someone. Um, or have an accident that is, you know, so debilitating that there's no coming back from it. You'll learn your lesson then. Uh, and you will start taking tech security and tech data integrity seriously when you suffer the, the wrong end of a breach, uh, and you have to pay for it. But until then, most of us are like, man, just load the app, get on with my, with my day, with my life. I don't really care. And that's unfortunate. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, talking about monitoring through your cell phone. Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Really appreciate it, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, how are you? I hope you're doing well. It is Friday, Scott. We're all doing well. I hear you. Uh, I was talking to Stephen Del Duca today. He was telling me about their plans to bring back grade 13 temporarily for those kids that are, uh, you know, I guess having difficulty post-pandemic. Your thoughts on all of this? Uh, so this rarely happens, Scott, but I will refer you back to sometime in late 2020 when somebody writing in the Hamilton Spectator said, what we really need to do in this province because of all the missed school time that high school kids are losing out on is bring back grade 13 for a limited period for the kids who have missed so much school during this time. And back then, uh, that, that was my argument. We, you're supposed to, by law in this province, by law, have to have 100, I think it's 194 classroom teaching days in each grade you're in to be eligible to move on and for the last couple of years especially the first year of the pandemic when they got out of school in march i think it was march 13 was their last mm -hmm. day they had 115 days they were roughly 80 teaching days short and then the next year with all the online and everything else and problems and everything else they were way short as well so you've only got two options when you look at that scott you either say these kids are hopelessly behind because they've missed so much time in class. And how can we possibly send them off to the next grade or to university when they've missed that much education? Or if the answer is, well, they're not really behind, how flabby and flaccid is our curriculum that we can eliminate 80 days of teaching and they've missed nothing? It's what about the, the people other. that, what about the people like, we're over two years into this. What about the people that have already gone through? 
Well, I mean, that's, that's, you know, I mean, isn't isn't everybody everybody's in the same boat all over the world? Yes. Uh, is Ontario well, we spending? To, I know, but well, we Ontario spending money on grade thirteen is that gonna is that gonna help? It's gonna, of course, it would help because if you've missed this much time, how can you possibly be sent off and be believing that you've got the education that we promise you as a social contract in this province? So Ontario's going to have the best. So Ontario's going to have the best students in Canada because they're all overqualified with the extra. You know, again, I got I got a kid in uh, turning fifteen and one turning twenty, and you know, uh, Alicia's got a couple of friends who stayed back and and did an extra semester or, or so. They're already kind of doing this, and and again, the option is there. The option is there if if you want it. So. Uh, again, I mean, everybody is in the exact same boat. And I remember as being one of the last people to go through grade 13, one of the re- and friends that went to UBC and, and Alicia's got a friend that, that's from Alberta. Um, you know, the whole reason of doing and eliminating grade 13 was because we're the only ones left doing it. And it didn't jive with any of the other education systems across the country. So again, to me, this is just populist politics. I mean, I think this just makes the system more complicated. If we have problems like you're ta- talking about, and I'm sure we do, and all of the things that, that Del Duca wants to incorporate into this, like mental illness and fiscal uh, responsibility, that's all great. But you can do that anyway. So Honestly. I believe that a lot of the stuff, I believe a lot of what is being thrown around is very populist politics and is just spending for the sake of spending. I don't think we need and to And done hire, anyway. Yeah, but I don't think we need to hire 10,000 new teachers. That's, well, you know what that's doing? That's hiring 10,000 people who presumably are going to be staunch liberal voters from now until the end of time because they're, that's what you do when you become a teacher. Apparently you vote liberal or NDP. You're not allowed to vote conservative. So we're, just, we're buying 10,000 new voters. But I go back to my point. If you are, have eliminated a huge amount of our education time, whether or not this means Ontario is going to be the best, fine. Be the best. But I'm looking at it like, let's be, we're going to be the best. Let me look at it this way. Let, let me look at it this way. And I remember Alicia, a lot of her friends said, you know, the first year of university during the f- first year of university during the first year of the pandemic, some kids neglected or, or decided not to go because they didn't think it yeah, would be the right, right experience. And at the end of the day, Scott, you know what you're doing? You're stepping off the merry-go-round. You might as well just keep going and keep rocking ahead because if, as my daughter pointed out, if you take that delay, you're just wasting another year. And here's another question. Here's another, here's another question. Where are the unions on this? Cause they are mum. There's no, uh, nothing coming out Why of the unions about up? any of this. Why would they speak up? They love this. I surely, they surely. That's what I'm saying. It. Why would they not promote it? Why would they not saying this is what we should be doing? We're hearing Del Duca scream about 20 people in a class, but we're not really hearing it from the unions yet. Why is they that? They don't have to. They don't have to because Del Duca. They and, do it every election. Are doing, I, but they do it when they're fighting against an idea that they don't like. They, yeah, but they, yeah, but they yeah, but the guy that's in charge. Yeah, but the guy that's in charge. The guy that's in charge is Ford, and that's who they're fighting against. He's not doing this. But they're right now. Okay, you will hear. But, but these things are ideas that have come out in the last few days. I guarantee you that as soon as Doug Ford says, "I don't like this," or "I don't support the idea that Del Duke is coming forward with," you'll hear the unions get involved. Of course they love this. They they why wouldn't they love this? It's 10,000 new jobs plus 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 the plus mil, billion plus the membership. 
I don't know. I don't think I don't think you're going to see too many kids who are willing to put their life on career, uh, their career on hold, just to go back and make sure. Like again, there's ones that'll do it that'll increase their grades. There's lots of ways to do that, but to put your life on hold and go back, I'm not sure. While the rest of the country and the rest of the world doesn't do it, I'm not sure it's much much this of an is, advantage. This but this will continue. This I know, I know we're totally disagreeing time. with you. I, I know this is one time I will say we were totally wrong to get rid of grade 13. I know we were the only ones, but it was actually a good thing. Every person who... I, I don't deny that. I do not I do not deny that at all. I don't deny that at all as a person who went through it. I agree with you 100%. But the fact is, we're out of sync with the rest of the world when we do. You're going to have to take it up on your show after that. Scott Very Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Thank you, Scott. And you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. 557, that's it for us. Thank you for... He's already hung up. He's ticked right off at me. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.